Before we begin this episode, make sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you're listening so you don't miss out on new episodes. Welcome back to Fan Wonderland, and it's time to fall down the rabbit hole with us again. I'm TJ, and today we have with us upcoming young talent, Brianna Lamb. Most of our listeners will know Brianna as a model or cosplayer. However, in addition to both modeling and cosplaying, Brianna is also the stand-in and photo double for Emma Dumont, aka Polaris on The Gifted. In addition to all this, Brianna sustained serious brain damage four years ago in a horrible car accident and is an inspiration not only myself but the entire cosplay community. Welcome, Brianna, and thank you for giving up your time to chat with us today. Hi, thanks for that wonderful introduction. I should take you everywhere with me. <laughs> Happily. Now, firstly, I want to touch on a serious subject before we dive into the cool, fun stuff like cosplay and everything. And as I mentioned in our intro, that is you sustained a brain injury after a serious car accident in 2014. Realistically, mm-hmm. and this will be dawning as up, you shouldn't have survived it, yet you did. You persevered through it all and have still been able to succeed with modelling, the gifted and cosplay four years later. We'd like to fill in our listeners on what happened and how you've come through it all with help from the cosplay community and your friends. Oh gosh, where to start? Um, so Reader Digest version. Uh, basically, I was on my way to work one day and um, I am remembering I'm not actually remembering this because I had amnesia for the first three days after the accident. So I am remembering this from what people told me happened. Um, That uh, I got hit dead on driver's side impact by another driver. He didn't see me. I didn't see him. It was a terrible intersection. It was just one of those like perfect storm of events. Um, And, uh, Unfortunately, I was in a little, little tiny car against a Mercedes, which is like a tank. Um, so I, uh, I spent a month at the hospital um, with a, uh, uh, my pelvis was broken in half and had to be rebuilt. Um, and a bunch of other injuries whose details I will uh, save. <laughs> um and then brain damage because I got uh, ricocheted off both windows of the car. Uh, and uh, that plus just the normal kind of damage that happens after a traumatic event um, compounded on that. Um, I took about a year fully to learn how to walk again. So when I left the hospital, I could not walk. Um, I was in a wheelchair and then a walker for months. I couldn't go to the bathroom by myself. I couldn't shower. Um, it was not pleasant. <laughs> not pleasant. But um, it taught me a lot, that's for sure. No, no, uh, for those that do want more in-depth information, Brianna did do a blog post about it, which we will link in the description. It's it's fairly detailed, so you've got fair warning. But yeah, I noticed there was a lot of, I think from what I read, it was at your near Dragon Con at that stage, and you had a lot of cosplays coming yeah. to it was, it was one of those things where obviously there's no good time for an accident to happen, um, but for me, there was no better time of the year um, because the hospital happened to be right across the street from Dragon Con. So 
my friends were literally walking over in costume from Dragon Con up to my hotel my ha hotel room hospital room <laughs> um to the point that the nurses on the bottom floor if they saw anybody in costume they'd be like all right she's in room 635B so i got to have like my own little mini dragon con in my hospital room well, i suppose at least you didn't miss out no it was it was amazing um and i had there was such an amazing outpour of support um my roommates had a booth uh with their band and they had a poster uh, with my name and what had happened on there. So my name was starting to spread around. And um, that was the first time in my life that I ever discovered that I was even minutely popular. <laughs> I was like, nobody's going to know that I'm in the hospital except my close friends. And suddenly I was getting tons of messages and emails from cosplayers all over the world. Um, and uh, one of the big ones, a shout out to Sarah Lauerschel, if I'm saying that correctly, of uh, lauracroftcosplay.com. Um, she was one of the first people to post about my accident. And she posted it to the Tomb Raider community and they just exploded um, with like pictures and encouragement and the fact that Crystal Dynamics heard about it. My goodness. And I got a care package from them signed by, like, everybody that could possibly fit on that card from Crystal Dynamics. Um, that would say things like, you're a Croft, you're a survivor. It was, that, was, that was amazing. That was a point where I really, really got to see the power of community. I think that's what everyone also sort of dismisses in general, which... We'll touch on later with the cosplay part, but that's something that gets dismissed often is the how tight knit the cosplay community actually are. Because mm -hmm. to like everyone else outside, they're just like, oh, they're just people dressing up. But like once you're actually in it, you you don't realize just how big the community is, and when something like what happened to you happens, they will come together. Oh yeah, it's um the way I heard it said once is it's a community of outcasts that have found all the other outcasts. And because we know what it's like to be outcasts and misfits and other, we want to hold on to each other more. Yeah, that's, I think, I think I couldn't have put that any better. To be honest, that was, that was, that was pretty much a perfect analogy, really. <laughs> Since we were on cosplay, how did you get into cosplay initially? Um, to think about this because apparently I had just had a conversation with somebody recently that I realized that I had unknowingly cosplayed a couple of times before I ever knew what cosplay was. Yeah, th um, th think we've all done that. <laughs> uh, like I did, I had a, a Lord of the Rings elf costume made for me when I was singing uh, May It Be back in. Uh, whatever Lord of the Rings was it 2002 2003 but again I didn't know what cosplay was I was like I'm just dressing up baby's first cosplay um, and then I kid you not my my second unknown unknowing cosplay was me in my own closet cosplay of Trinity from the Matrix 
standing in front of the American flag. And that, I kid you not, was my senior picture <laughs> in my school yearbook. <laughs> I mean, there's, well, there's worse pictures. Yeah, yeah. Um, as far as when I actually learned about cosplay... I can't remember if it was either when I went into college in 2005 and I learned a lot more. I was part of my school's anime club and cosplay is there because I knew about anime beforehand. Like my mom taught me about Robotech and Gundam Wing was one of my favorites and all that. But I still didn't know cosplay. Um, but I also was very heavily into the online Star Wars community and was trying to make my own fan film at the time, like most people. And there was a lot of costume stuff involved, but I think I didn't I didn't know cosplay as I knew costuming, so I actually don't have a pat dry answer for that. I should probably think about that more at another time. Well maybe is, was there someone that kind of inspired you to sort of start creating your own then? Um no, you know, I think it was the anime club at my college, because um, that's also when I very first heard of Dragon Con and MTAC, which was the Metal Tennessee Anime Convention. Um, I, so I kind of heard it all at, like, once, and was like, what is this world I've never discovered? Um, and it's funny, because I still haven't done the first cosplay I ever wanted to do. I might do her one day, but uh, I wanted to do Tifa from Final Fantasy Advent Children. I think we all have that first one that we always put off. Yep. It's funny, I've, I have, for all the cosplays I've done, I've put off almost all of my main, major geek loves. Like, I still haven't done anything from Lord of the Rings or Babylon 5, which are like my two favorites. I'm like, huh, I need to work on that. <laughs> what is your favorite? At least I got Tomb Raider. I got Tomb Raider. It's the big one. Oh yeah. What is your favorite cosplay you've done so far? Tomb Raider, one hundred percent hands down. Yeah, that that is hands down. For those that listen, it will actually be on the cover, one of the Tomb Raider shots. So there we go. And it's a really gorgeous one too. Do you have a Yay. dream cosplay you do if money wasn't a limit? Oh gosh. I have so many. Um, back when I was probably abnormally too skinny, I really wanted to try to do a realistic Navi from Avatar. Because the running joke with my friends back when that movie came out was, did James Cameron sketch you in your back when you weren't looking? Because I have a crazy abnormally long torso. And when the shot of nitty like crouching in the trees i'm like oh my god it's my back but unfortunately you have to be really 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 probably not healthy skinny to pull that off like realistically well um not knocking any other uh navi cosplayers out there everybody cosplay what you love i'm just one of those stupid picky people for myself we're talking screen accurate which I think a lot, yeah, I think a lot of us do, but... Yeah, it's also because I was a pro film costumer as well, so I like being as realistic as possible, and that's what that's actually what really drew me to cosplay. And then 
subsequently um, film costuming itself as a job. Um, so that's just that's just me and my own little OCD mind. I like it being as uh, realistic as is reasonable. What do you feel is the most challenging thing about cosplay that either makes you hesitant to create a cosplay? Mine's my my own perfectionism and money. <laughs> I, I think that's honestly all of us most of the time. Yeah. As generally, it's, it's and really I've, expensive or just too difficult. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and for me, a lot of the time, it's money. Um, for the simple fact that I I am god awful at sewing, I can do designing, modeling, certain styles of fabrication, but sewing past like basic button repair, <laughs> no, 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 no. I leave that to somebody else. Um, but unfortunately, that means I then have to pay more to have it commissioned, um, which is one of the many reasons that I've been moving more into geek fashion. Uh, especially because in cosplay, because the markets become so huge. Um, if you have a, a a character like I love Ray from Star Wars, and I've cosplayed Ray, um, but now it's it's been done so much um, that outside of the obvious reason of cosplaying a character that you love. Like, I love cosplaying Ray and, like, going to read to kids at local libraries. It's super fun. Um, but just for, like, a cosplay purpose, I'm like, well, I have nothing else to add. I have nothing else to bring to the community with me doing Ray. Um, I may not be describing that exactly eloquently, so forgive me. Well, I, think, I think that makes um, sense. Well, on my side of things, that made sense. Yeah. So that's why I've been moving a little bit more towards the geek fashion because I feel like there's still so much creativity there and so much chance for originality that I am not capable of with cosplay. <laughs> I think that's where... At least not nearly to the level. Yeah, I think that's where her universe is probably coming to help quite a lot, particularly mm -hmm. with Ashley. Like, uh, no, she did like 13th Doctor coat and shirt, and it's, as far as I can tell, screen accurate. Which is really oh, yeah. helpful, especially as you said, money's often an issue for cosplayers, and it's a more affordable coat than if you try to go like the exact screen accurate one the BBC got. That's probably hundreds of dollars. Sort of the same as Sherlock. I've looked at doing that, but the screen oh, accurate yeah. one is so rare. I think it's like a thousand dollars for the actual same style fabric and everything. Oh yeah, and it's just. I remember insane. one of the things I wanted to do was, and I still want to do this. Is I want to do a Femme Tenth Doctor. And I was trying to find that elusive brown and blue pinstripe. And it just, one, it's really hard to find. And if you do find, because it was, I think, Gap. I think it was based on a Gap suit that they modified. Um, so, of course, that original material doesn't even exist anymore. Um, and it led me down the rabbit trail of like, oh, well, instead of that one, maybe I can do a Femme 11 Doctor and get that beautiful tweed until you see that that tweed is like a hundred, two hundred dollars a yard. And you just go, nope, I'm backing away. Because I've, I've cosplayed 11 in Tasmania and like I'm, I think I'm one of the few that does at the moment. But like I end up getting the replica jacket that I think the BBC put out. 
and that's yeah. like the closest. I think I think I did look at a story in town at one stage for I believe it was Constantine's trench coat, and that one's equally mm-hmm. as hard to find as David's, to be honest. Because the, the one that John Constantine has is like this nude clay sort of color, and it's just uh, and because it's a really long one. The only ones you can generally find online are the short ones that go to, like, just above your knees. The one he wears yep. is, like, David Tennant long ankle length. And uh, to get it screen accurate, I think the one I found in town was, like, $400. I was like, eh, no. I cannot justify yeah, that on right. a trench coat just now. Like, I mean, unless it's going to win me some competitions and some money back, yeah, I can't justify that. It's, and that, yeah, it's, it's very much a bit of an issue, I think, to... So I put together a gender band Harley one, and that was equally as expensive to do and difficult because 90% of it's all made for women, which I think is the issue when you do want to crossplay or gender band mm-hmm. something is quite often it's ever, only ever made for the one gender, which yeah. given the cosplay community, it'd be nice if they started changing that just just for the rest of us. Because quite often, you know, mm-hmm. as you said, you want to do 10th Doctor, there's, but you really can't because most of it's in like big guy sizes. But then that, then you come to the the creativity side of it. Yeah. So like I wanted to do a Fem Ten, but I designed my own costume and quote unquote feminized it, um, but also made it flattering for my body shape and my body type. And I think that that's something that's actually really really cool with gender bent cosplays or even um, geek fashion is seeing okay how can you take this existing character and this existing costume and make it work for you. And I think it's, it's really fun. Like in the Tomb Raider community, we have a lot of, uh, uh, tomb, tomb bros, tomb Raiders, as we call them, or the Larry Crofts, the Lawrence Crofts. And it's really cool seeing how they come up with it. Or there's, um, I haven't seen many of them, uh, but there's a few Ray cross players and it, it can actually be really cool seeing how how people translate things and not not just the typical um, uh, like taking a, a male identified character and putting boobs on it and going okay well now it's a crossplay but actually thinking through what lines of seams what type of fabrics would flatter a more curvaceous pear-like figure or a different skin tone or you know what have you whatever's original and unique to that cosplayer so i had that with the harley one idea because i had to put to i put together a whole bunch of stuff got a jacket that probably wasn't technically comic accurate but it was still harley and like i designed some own some own playing cards i'd like drew harley style on them and put together all this stuff got a bat off etsy so i was trying to get some like commission stuff that wasn't going to send me through the roof and i mean i got there in the end it's very much not a screen accurate or a comic accurate one but but it's yours yeah. it's your unique version and that can be just as awesome thank you i think that's what everyone needs to hear <laughs> you're welcome Speaking of, there's still a large stigma around cosplay in general in society sadly do you feel that shifting towards positive at all rather than the assumption that it's just a bunch of nerds dressing up? And I use that in air quotes 
since, you know, it's an audio one. As that's generally the assumption, however, for some of us it's an escape from the stress of everyday life or that makes us feel stronger while in cosplay as a certain character. Was that two questions? Kind of, kind of. Well, it was more there's still a large stigma around it. And do you feel that's moving towards more that everyone's being supportive of others? I think it, I think it depends. I think largely, yes. Um, because we're, we're moving in general as a society towards acceptance of a lot of different things, a lot of fringe subcultures. There's always going to be people that think something that's different than them is dumb. But by and large, I've discovered, um, like, I will use, I'm going to pick on our, our, our favorite folks, the sports people, the supposed antithesis of the geek community. And at Dragon Con, because we have Dragon Con on Labor Day weekend, where we're usually always up against a sports event, and they love coming out to see the weirdos in costume. Except when it inevitably happens every single time, is there's at least one person in that group of sports ball folks that's secretly a geek yep. <laughs> and secretly thinks, I want to be in there with these people. Um, or I've had times where the sports ball folks will come out and want to, you think they're wanting to jeer at you, but in fact, they think you're really cool. Like, that happened with my Ray costume um, a couple years ago. And I, I walked by, like, bros looking real, like, frat boy kind of stuff. And I was, like, stealing myself for the comments that were coming. And they're like, oh, my gosh, your Ray's amazing. I freaking love Force Awakens. And they just want to start talking Star Wars with you while they're wearing their Atlanta Falcons, you know, jerseys and whatever. And I'm like, you know what? It, it is possible. You can be a geek and like sports too. Um, it's, I think it's actually on an individual basis. But um, people definitely do think it's weird. I don't care. <laughs> I am an obnoxious ray of sunshine that's just going to be like, let me tell you the gospel of cosplay. You don't like it? Let me tell you why. It's awesome. I love that you just, that, <laughs> you, you, you meant like ray of sunshine, but there's a bit of a Star Wars pun there as well. That was totally on purpose. Well, I feel like that's it's it is shifting a bit. I feel like particularly with actors that I've talked to, like they they seem to be more embracing the fact that oh, you know, holy shit, we've got fans that like dress up like us, and like they're starting to be really accepting of it and share it. I think Robert Downey Jr.'s done that a bit as well. Like they're starting to realise there's some really good cosplays out there. Oh yeah. And you know, they're putting in the effort to look like us. And I think that's that's really, really awesome that they're actually acknowledging the fact that people do do this as a living. They do put in the effort to put these costumes together because they want to idolise them or as I mentioned before, they feel stronger while in cosplays a certain character. Oh, yeah, that's um, something that I think has really been helped by the internet and social media because people aren't just dressing up as characters because, oh, hey, I want to look cool as this character. I mean, some do, but a lot of times there's a much, much deeper um, connection with a character. Like, you know, for me, for, for Tomb Raider, 
Um, yeah, part of it goes back to I've been playing Tomb Raider since I was a kid. I loved Lara Croft. I wanted to be Lara Croft. Um, but, I mean, when I got older, it took on a whole new meaning like it did when I had that accident. And people were telling me, you know, when I was struggling in physical therapy and they're just like, you're a Croft, you're Lara Croft, you can do this, you can get through this, you're a survivor. And it takes on a whole different thing. And so I see a lot of times with people who cosplay certain characters that a lot of times the character means something far, far more to them than just somebody cool they watch on the screen. And the actors are getting to see that more and more than I think that they used to. Yeah, I think because a lot of people don't realise that that's something that we get to do while in cosplay. Like you said, when you get to go read to kids at the library, that's something I had is when I, I think I first cosplayed Eleven, and I just had this kid come up to me and go, Doctor, and you just interact with him as the character just automatically. And it's, I don't think it's really, I would, you haven't really, really explain it. It's just something awesome that when you're in cosplay, it's like you get to interact with these kids, become the character they love. They don't see, oh, you've oh, yeah. got a really shitty outfit. It's not accurate or whatever. They just see the character that they know and love. And that's why I love looking at cosplays because it's just like, I, I don't see like the cosplay. I'm just like, oh, that's Ray. That looks just looks spot on. Like that that looks so much like Ray. And I think that's... I, I think you're I, I think you're exactly right about like the kids versus adult things because we're so prone to judge ourselves, judge each other even. And kids, I, I remember I did a, a hospital charity event a few years back and I was doing Belle and I was like, oh, my costume didn't quite right, come out right. Like the seams are just pulling and this looks terrible. I looked in the mirror and was like, uh, and my hair is, I can't do Belle hair because I was not gifted with thick, nice tresses, this stringy, stringy crap. And I'm walking in going, okay, well, I'm going to put on a little bell face, but I'm just not feeling it. And that got completely torn down when this one little girl comes running up to me. No words. Just runs up to me and attaches herself to my leg. And, of course, her parents come running over like, oh, Julie, 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 come here. Um, I'm going, oh, my gosh, we're so sorry. And I'm like, no, it's okay. And she was just like, she was like incoherently saying bell over and over again. Once they got her away to go back to where she was going uh, or where she was supposed to be, the parents told me she was one of those Make-A-Wish Foundation kids that got sent to Disney World. And Belle was her favorite. and Or one of her favorites. Ariel was the other one. And they saw Ariel. But they didn't get to see Belle. And they looked at the little girl and were like, look, Belle came just for you. Like, oh god, I'm gonna cry. I don't care about this costume. Oh my gosh, that little kid. Huh. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think that's that's what a lot of people don't stop to think about cosplay when they do try and attack it. It's like that's the sort of thing that makes it worth doing, it makes it special. Because mm -hmm. that's that's what I had like a similar worry about my Harley. I'm like, it's not accurate, no one's gonna know who it is, no one's gonna like it. But then I came like across the friends that I know that know Harley, and they're like, oh, that's cool. Like, where'd you get this? And 
like where'd you get the bat and stuff? Because like I put in the effort to try and find the bat that was kind of what I wanted, that wasn't actually like Arkham or anything like that. And I think it's a lot of people forget that even if it's just the one kid, it still makes it worth it that for all the time and effort you put it together into the cosplay. There, oh totally. There's, there's you've just made one kid's day even brighter, and I think that's. When people try to attack it, I think that's something that needs to stop and remember is that's what it does. And if you can change one kid's life, such as a Make-A-Wish kid, like you said, then I think it's really worth it. Absolutely. And there's also, I want to make a note about personal, uh, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Use your words, Brianna. Um... One of the issues that I have with brain damage is I will forget word connections a lot. So I apologize if I'm pausing every few minutes going, uh, what? What word? Um, but like talking about doing cosplay for kids, um, like for yourself, but the interaction with kids. And some people don't get that and that's fine. And they just do it for themselves, which is awesome. Um, and I think there's something really important there as well, because I think a lot of people with cosplay get caught up in the convention circuit and trying to impress other cosplayers and impress the community and put more emphasis on, oh, I really hope that other people like this. And I mean, I do that. We all do that. But I've been learning the last few years that... Once I got over my perfectionist OCD self and told her to sit down, um, where I found, like, for me, one of the things that makes me happiest is the photo shoots. And not the convention photo shoots, but the location shoots. And what I get to experience doing that. So, like, um, I did a Last Jedi Ray shoot, and I got to go to a place near me called Stone Mountain, which I've been to tons of times. This particular day that I went, it was, um, it was misty. It was kind, it was very slightly rainy and it was fog everywhere. And normally I would be at home curled up in my little seasonal depression and being gray outside and not want to do anything. But I had a mission that day. I had, a, I had a photo shoot to do. You know, I put on the costume. I was Ray. And I ran out into, onto the mountain. And it had transformed into this eerie, mystical landscape. Where suddenly, I was at Skellig Island. I was, I was there. Like Luke, could, Luke Skywalker would pop out behind a rock at any time. And that is still one of my favorite photo shoots to date. And I didn't have any interaction with anybody else besides our photography team, who were awesome. Um, but just being able to have that experience of being up on a mountain completely enveloped in fog was just beautiful and mind-blowing. And it was technically a normal kind of day yeah it was a place that lots of people in atlanta go to they go hike stone mountain but that experience made it amazing to be in costume 
Yeah. Now, like touching your work on The Gifted, as mentioned at the beginning of this episode, you're Emma Dumont's double on the show, and you've become very tight-knit. And, mm-hmm. and so naturally, we asked... There's the, only so many people that can fit our pants. <laughs> also, also <laughs> just the look-alike is really freaky. Like, I, I, I think you, like... I think it's about the bit of your facial structure, and that's the only difference. Like your hair's the same, your body's the same, everything's the same. It's like it's just the face. That's literally the only difference between the two of you. And it's it's kind of freaky. And actually. that, folks, is how I got my job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we asked the fan of the show, Natalie, if she had any questions, and Natalie, who I'm fairly sure you're aware of, asked what it was like to wear the iconic head crown of Polaris. Oh my gosh. I was so excited because um, my friend Elizabeth uh, at Perfectly Painted Pixels on Instagram is actually the one who created the uh, headpieces as she was one of the um, set prop folks on uh, on Gifted. Um, And I remember Emma telling me uh, like weeks prior that this was coming the headpiece was coming and I was like, because oh, I'm a geek. Of course I'm going to geek out about it. Oh, yeah. um, and I'm thinking I don't get to wear it. Cause I bet you they only made a couple just for Emma. I'm just going to go sit over here and you know, I'll be fine. Um, so the day that they told me, Oh, Hey, you're photo doubling. And I saw them pull the headpiece out. Like my eyes got like, big enough to take up half of my face and of course I once I was done and I was like great they don't need me for a whole other scene and I went straight to Emma's trailer and was like Emma selfie time which I believe (laughs) is actually on our cover yep that's exactly what we did did you get to keep it oh no 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 that's show property I know that's That'd be the one thing property. I'd like to well, to you know, us. for the hopes that we have a third season. True. Well, fingers, fingers crossed we will. I really hope. Yes. <laughs> I want my job back. Natalie also wants to know, what sort of projects would you like to be involved in outside of The Gifted? Are there any particular roles or projects you would really love to be a part of? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Are we talking standing or acting? Because if we're talking acting, so many... Um, let's go both. Let's go both. Well, stand in anything Emma's involved in, because we can stand to be around each other for 16 hours a day. Um, I think other body types would be like Kira Knightley. I think that would be fun. I think it'd be fun to, to stand in and double for Kira Knightley. I feel like a uh, can is probably an obvious one. Yeah, I'm not sure how tall she is. I'm not sure if she's my height or not. Because I'm on the slightly slightly taller end. I'm, I think I'm average at 5'9", but apparently 5'9 is on the taller end. But Alicia does, Alicia Vikander does seem to do a lot of cool roles. She's 1.68 meters. Whatever that translates to on your side. I'm not sure. My phone is beeping on the other side of the room, so about I can't about tell. About 168 centimeters. I think that converts to. I think that's. I think that's close. It's close enough. Well, there we go. 
But it's Tomb Raider, so... Right. Of course. Tomb Raider's already been done, so I can't stand in and photo double for her for that. Unless they do a second one. They might. Should be awesome. Um, acting, though. Gosh. I would just be so happy to act in anything at this point. Because I'm... As most stand-ins, I'm working my way to that. Um, and I avoided it for so long. Because I didn't want to be the stereotypical, oh, here we go, another stand-in who wants to be an actor. Um, life and my brain had other plans, apparently. Because unfortunately, due to my brain damage and my various disabilities from the car accident, there are not many jobs that I can do. Um... And there are actually certain abilities that I have lost due to injuries. Um, like I was a storyboard artist and concept artist for 10 years beforehand. And I have, I have not completely lost the ability to do that, but I have, it has greatly lessened to the point that I am nowhere near as fast as I used to be. And I can't come up with as many, um, angles and panels as I used to and the deadlines have become insane so I'm no longer an effective artist um, so I lost that job but weirdly my brain decided to rewire itself and go hey you're gonna suddenly be very good at memorizing things on set very quickly that's handy <laughs> right and I didn't, I didn't know this until I was, I was forced to do it when I worked on season one of MacGyver and there was some skerfuffle on set where I had to do rehearsals with our two leads and uh, just had to constantly go through the lines. Now we had our, our script, so I didn't have to, I wasn't forced to memorize it, but I just kind of naturally did by picking it up and I was like, oh, surely this is a one-time thing. And then it kept happening. I was like, oh, this is new. So you sort of lost so, one and gained one, really. Exactly. Um, unfortunately, of course, I had to gain on the job that's like the hardest thing to get. Like Trying to go into acting is, is very, very, very difficult, especially if you're in Atlanta. <laughs> so I'm like, no, why? <laughs> Even though I do love acting. I love... Um, we get a chance to do that on set a lot because um, the actors will do their rehearsal and we have to watch and memorize everything they do in that one time of watching them and then recreate it. And me and Percy stand in, his name is Arizona. Uh, he and I would challenge ourselves to memorize the sides, the, the script so that when they would say second team rehearsal to test all the lights and camera, we could do it off book. Just for fun, because we're overachievers. <laughs> so if there's ever a alternate universe episode, we've got him as twin. Right. Right. Maybe suggest that to him season three. Do a... Because I don't think a Marvel show has actually touched on alternate Earths yet. Which do exist. No. They do exist. Be like, can Just, I be alternate universe Scarlet Witch? Oh, yes. Yes. You've got the hair to pull it off, actually, so yes. <laughs> Although I've got my, my Kitty Pride bangs going on. I would happily have Kitty. 
Oh yeah, no. If I could Rogue play Kitty, any X Men, it would be wasted. Kitty Pride. Yeah, Rogue and Kitty were, wa- were wasted in the films. I'm gonna say it now. They're, Agreed. My, they're my two favorites, Ooh, and I'll, they deserve more. I'll be good because I will go on about Kitty Pride in X Men for a while. <laughs> I was gonna say the other one you could pull off with that hair, and I think this one would probably make Natalie quite happy. Is X23 because she wants to see X23 in this yeah. story, and I feel like it's probably something that could work. To be honest. Yeah, I would love that too. Especially if they did more of the actual Laura Kinney uh, background, like that's in the comics. Because um, as much as I love the movie Logan, they definitely went very different with her uh, her origin story. Just in general, to have an so unhinged. Be- I mean, we had Rebecca. <laughs> what 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 was the feeling of that? Because I'm going to think you're on set for that, and this is obviously spoilers for the season finale, or the mid-season finale of The Gifted. All right, that, so... Uh, Rebecca bit the dust quite Spoiler sadly. alert. Yeah, spoiler <laughs> alert. Um, honestly, I didn't I didn't know about it. Um, of course, stand-ins are like the last people to know anything. That's just how this goes. So, of course, we show up on set and we get our sides for that day, um, which some of our executive producers like to come over to uh, me and one or two of the other stand-ins who are geeks and be like, so did you read the sides today just to watch us freak out? That day was one of those days um, where, and it was actually back a few episodes prior where she twisted the, uh, all of the hostages. Um, I did not think they were going to go that far. And when I, we were even setting up the scene and I was like, okay, well surely last minute they're going to, you know, get her out. And then I read the line of the script and was like, oh god, they did it! Because oh. <laughs> I, I, I found out about uh, poor Angelica's fate after oh, upon setting up the interview with with her manager, and he's like, "Can we do it before next week's episode?" I'm like, "What's the rush?" And he's like, um, "We just like to do it before next week's episode." And then I found out why he wanted to do it before next week's episode because she wouldn't be coming back. And both Natalie and I, yeah. we were robbed of that. Like, I get the idea for Andy's storyline, but honestly, Angelica is just a, such a talent and we're, we're really robbed of Rebe- more Rebecca. We, she deserved better. Yeah. She did, though, at the same time, unless they had a much larger story arc with her, I think because of the level of psychopathy... That's not the right <laughs> word, but I'm not thinking of it right now. She needed, she needed to die. Yeah. Um, as much as we loved die, having. Though. Oh yeah. Um, I was also super surprised when when Percy Stand in Arizona told me like, oh my gosh, Annie's the one that does it. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like I knew it was coming. I didn't. I think I knew it was at Andy's hand, but that was about the extent I knew. It was this sickening just dunk into the wall and I was like okay we're, we're not pulling punches here <laughs> yeah I've been I was really surprised about that this season like they and there's more stuff coming I feel, I feel, uh, I feel like Fox gave me some more rain some more like move, room to move I don't yeah I don't know whose decision it was but they did not pull punches at all this season and I'm actually really grateful for that because um, a lot of times you're like oh of course this character is going to live because they don't don't kill anybody. Nothing happens. Oh, oh, oh! They gone. They did. They real did. Okay. It's like it's, 
especially with that and with Angelica, like they brought in an original character for it. Like that's, you can tell they're not essentially going off the comics a hundred percent, which I think is really good. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure with her character. I think it, yeah, it is original. original. Yeah, she was so an original creation. She was, okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. But I do know like Matt Nix, um, our show creator is a big X-Men geek, which let me tell you, there are so many geeks that work on this show, and that's one of the things that makes it so much fun to work on. Um, and he really likes to pull obscure characters from X-Men lore. Like, it took me, and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to surrender my geek card for a second here <laughs> and go, I didn't know till halfway through the season that Reva Page was actually an existing member of the Hellfire Club. Um, it's okay, neither, that was neither a did I, and I'm about as geeky as you, so. <laughs> yeah, and because I realized I I knew the Hellfire Club, like I had, mm. I, had, I knew some of the characters, I knew the Black Queen and the White Queen and all that stuff, but I, I didn't know the particulars and I hadn't remembered the obscure characters until I saw somebody put up a picture of our lovely Grace, who's such a sweetheart, um, as Reba, and then a picture of this blonde, blue-eyed comic character. And I was like, I don't understand this picture. Although she's got her mouth open. And then I read the description. I was like, oh no. I mm, hang my head in shame. But to be fair, I have terrible memory. So even if I read that comic a million times, I doubt I'd remember it. <laughs> well, I, th- I, th- I think we forgive you because uh, from memory, I think Angelica thought Thor was in the X-Men. So we- we- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's of course, like, now I'm now like, I'm, yeah, it's totally fine. Angelica. Now I'm like going through an index file in my brain, going, he never was on the X Men or X Force teams, was he? Because there's so much crossover. Oh yeah, like Wolverine was one of the Avengers. Yeah, I was, I was like, who's your favorite X Men character? And she's like, oh, I really like Thor. I'm like, what? And I was, I was like, he's not in the X Men. She's like, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> There's probably somewhere, some comic, some Earth 2 alternate universe where that probably happened. Well, I mean, there's I one don't where Thor's remember. a horse, so... And a frog. Well, yeah, so... And then It's entirely, entirely possible that after Angelica's podcast episode, someone heard it and gone, right, let's make that happen. <laughs> right, you know, it's... I mean, I mean Thor's a woman now, her. so, hey, it's not, not another real possibility. Yeah, although I like the fact that that's... Oh, no, I don't want to give any spoilers in case people haven't read the comic. Yeah, that didn't include me, because I really need that judge today. But, no, I mean, there's there's ones like that that I feel could happen. I mean, they do what-if issues, even, so... I'm pretty sure Jane's become a member of the A-Force, I believe. Yeah. So, I mean, that's about right. technically an Avenger there. Sorry, well, she is an Avenger. Okay, close enough. But, I mean, yeah, close it's... Enough. It's there. What would you like to see in season three if, you know, thankfully Fox does that? As much Polaris as possible so I can work as much as possible. <laughs> um, besides that obvious thing. Uh, I wish so much that we could have characters from the normal, regular mainstream X-Men, but 
Is there something that's preventing that? Like, I assume that would be yeah, the I, I don't, Marvel... I don't fully understand it, but I believe there's some sort of copyright thing. Like, we can't say Magneto on the show, so... I've gathered that, um, because I think I raised that with Angelica. It's yeah. like, it's the one, like, it's alluded to, but it's never actually said. Yeah, and I remember that all, like, I know he does in the first season. And then I was like, okay, it's some... There's some copyright thing. I don't fully understand it, um, but... The one that's confusing, though, course, is Blink was in the films and yet they've allowed her to be on the show that's the one that confuses me yeah even though it's a different actress different actress um, but she was still on in days of future past remember? yeah i don't fully get it but um, so like you we can have blink but we can't have the others like yeah it's, i i don't fully understand it but at the same time what i do like about our show um is that we don't actually have the main people yeah, otherwise the, it would take it away. The universe is huge, and you want to see the stories of people that are not just the um, the main ones. It would be nice to have some crossover sometime. Um, but there's also, there's been how many decades of X-Men comics? There's so many characters. Um, there's so many that they can pull from to show. I mean... I'm always holding out for Kitty Pride so I can audition. But unfortunately, I imagine Kitty Pride is probably under that weird copyright. So. But then again, Kitty hasn't <sighs> been used since, I think, the first trilogy. So it may have lapsed. Fingers crossed. Possibly. I did see that there was something about them wanting to do, that they had announced, I think, last year about doing a standalone Kitty film. Yeah. Um, I'll just put uh, on Bobblehead for those listening and probably heard some shit. Oh, yeah. I just went, yes. <laughs> I did too. Yes. <laughs> We, we both went bobblehead and big eyed and bobblehead. Um, yeah, I've actually been like trying to get my, uh, get my things together, get my demo reels and auditions together, credits and all that of hopes if I could ever get to that level. But I'm like, no, realistically, that's not how this works. You got to start from the bottom and then work your way up. So, but my, uh, my jealous hat is off to whoever gets that role. Well, hopefully, because they really went, I think when they had her in the film, they didn't give her the, no, that was Rogue, they didn't give her the real southern drawl that she has in the comics. I think it was very mild. It wasn't, like, she goes full on hard to understand in the comics. Oh, yeah. And, like, I think they... in the Rogue, the Rogue cut, we were robbed. Like, I got the Rogue cut. Oh, yeah. It was good, but, like, Anna Paquin, she's, like, yeah she, was, yeah, she was right. But, like, we were so robbed yeah. of her over so oh, many, yeah. like, she, she has more... There's been a lot of those characters. She has more in the Deadpool Sorry. game than she does in the films. Right. And, like, that's I, the sort uh, of I, banter we need. I noticed that minus certain characters, certain main characters, like Wolverine and Cyclops, which I, I thought they did a really good job with, um, was it James Marston? I actually lied to Miss Cyclops. Um, but I felt we got robbed for Rogue. They And nothing against the actors, because I don't mm. think it was the actors as it was the writing and the directing and editing. We got super robbed of Kitty. Oh, yeah. Because the whole idea of, like, Days of Future Past is Kitty's story. I know. I was just like, and She's barely in the film. <laughs> like, what is this? <laughs> Uh, and then uh, another character that got really robbed is uh, 
Angel, mm. Warren Worthington, who was, to my knowledge, like one of, not an original X Men in terms of the team, but he was one of the first and the foremost, like uh, prominent out there mutants. You know, kind of hard to hide the wings. Um, not a snot-nosed teen. <laughs> so it's been very interesting to see the change. Like, I was so excited for... Oh, see, now you got me talking on X-Men. Oh, I warned you. Um, like, I... I really love um, X-Men First Class. I also hate X-Men First Class. It is a love-hate relationship. Um, I love what they did with Xavier... And Magneto, I thought that was flawlessly done. They nailed it. Um, the rest of it, I still want to know whose idea it was to mess up the timelines. Like, how does Alex Summers come before Scott Summers? Or, you know, the, like most X-Men fans know of the original team or original teams of X-Men with them. Uh, Iceman and Beast and Jean Grey and Cyclops. And I think in the movie it's another character named Angel. That's like a dragonfly type character. Darwin, Mystique. It's, I'm like, I'm so confused. Because I thought the X-Men First Class was going to be a reboot. I didn't realize it was a prequel. So... That's another reason why I love our show, because our show makes sense to me in the X-Men timeline of things. The movies don't. <laughs> See, I think as much as I still watch them. I think given the timeline, that's why Laura could probably come into it, because given the post-Brotherhood setting, Laura would be about the right age for the show, technically speaking, as well. Yeah, I can see that. I don't think they will, though, because she was in Logan. But she was only as a kid, so she's never actually appeared as X-23. She was just called Laura. I don't think she ever True. had... True. I don't think she ever had the last That's name true. in the film, from memory. It was just... She was just called Laura. Like, it was alluded to she was X-23, but she was never called that or called Laura Kinney, That's as far true. as I'm aware. That's true. The only thing is, yeah, given... I mean, also... I mean, I mean, they may... Because, I mean, like I said, they gave you they gave the show Blink, so... This is true. Um, it's hard to say. I don't I don't know what happens with the powers that be. Um, but uh, it would be interesting. Especially because in our show, we don't... We don't know what's happened to the X-Men themselves. We yeah. don't know what's happened to Xavier and all of that whole side of things. Um, I mean, do you actually know so, outside of that? Like, outside of the show? No. Do, so they haven't actually... No, they're keeping it they, They're keeping it very ambiguous. So they actually do have actually thought that out. They just haven't made it public to the cast, I assume. Um, well, I'm going to say to the stand-ins. Because <laughs> I don't know. Um, like, I assume we'd find that out at some stage, probably. Yeah, I... I want to say... Matt Nix told me at some point about when in the timeline roughly it is. But I have a Swiss cheese for a brain, so I forgot. I, I think going by the show, I'd say it's probably like posts. 
X-Men 3, I feel. Post-Brotherhood. Post oh, mate, it depends on which timeline we're going with as well, and that's where it gets messy. <laughs> yeah, that's where it gets tricky, because you hear Blink talking about the Brotherhood, mm. but then the Hellfire Club still exists, so it's... Um, or is it in another dimension, also, is the question. Exactly. We don't know. It could, this could be a completely alternate universe to what the movies are, or what's currently going on in the comics. We don't know. I mean, if there's, there's one band I'd like to see, it'd be Deadpool and Rogue. Just, if you play the the game that I think there's High Moon Studios put out, they're, they're, they're a really good Deadpool game. He just full-on flirts and pervs on Rogue, like, no tomorrow. Like, oh, that's Wade Wilson for you. Yeah, but that's the sort of band I'd love to see if they assumingly will bring the franchises together. I mean, they're already in the same universe, so make it happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I did really appreciate that in the Deadpool films of having, like, Colossus there and just having all that banter and all, like, the breaking the fourth wall about studio executives and copyrights and all those made me happy. Also the fact that uh, Deadpool is a Hufflepuff. Yes! Also Hufflepuff. Since since we're already on the gifted, how did you come to be involved in the show initially and become Emma's double? Besides um, the similarity, obviously. <laughs> no, that that is literally it. Um... I am registered with Central Casting in Atlanta, and I'm in their database. And so whenever a show comes to town, they look for somebody that is the same general height and look, hair color, eye color, skin color, roughly, of any particular actor and actress. Because what a stand-in does is we're kind of like pre-actors. Um, the actors will come in and they'll act out the scene for everybody to see. And then they go back to their trailers or hair and makeup or their chairs. And then we spend the next 30 minutes to four hours, depending on the scene, setting it up with the cameras and the lights, effects, all of that stuff. Um, but that could be a very long, laborious process of just standing there or like going through the motions again and again and again, but not necessarily acting. So, they choose to not wear out the actors to keep them fresh to act. Um, so that's where we come in um, as stand-ins. And then photo doubling, because um, the two tend to go hand in hand. Um, photo doubling comes in when the actor's either indisposed on another set um, or even another unit on the same set. And like they need a shot of them picking up something. So most of the time, um, if you see a close-up of Polaris's hand picking up something, it's my hand and not Emma's. Um, also because we cost less than the actors do. So <laughs> that's the reality of it. Um, but, you know, we get to play and have fun. So I can dress up in the costume and run around and... Um, also for car scenes, sometimes when you're uh, fire away shots, um, sometimes when characters or our actors are off on publicity shoots, but they're like, oh, we need this 
shot of them over their shoulders. You can see their hair and their shoulder, but not their face. Well, they'll bring in a photo double instead. Because, you know. Um, so because of that, we have to look as close to the actress as possible. So to keep that illusion on screen. Because um, stunt doubles a lot of the times are usually, depending, like, for women, tend to be bigger because they're more muscular. Um, as just one example. Um, so I am in Central's database and when Gifted came to town and they're like, we're looking for these people. We need somebody for Emma DeMont. And uh, Tony over at Central called me really excited uh, about a month before filming. It was like, Brianna, I have the perfect actress for you to stand in for. You want it? Um, and when she said, yeah, it's for a character named Polaris, I like freaked <laughs> out because I knew exactly what that was. I didn't even know they were filming an X-Men TV show, but I'm like, I know that name. <laughs> yes. So basically you just um, fangirled and lost the shit. Yeah, I all internally, um, I, I'm very good at inner fangirling. Because outward fangirling is, is not a good thing in my line of work. <laughs> oh, oh, mine. <laughs> um, and it worked out really great. Um, I uh, Emma declared on day two that we were now best friends. And it was funny because she's super friendly, super nice. And I thought she was joking. Um, and I think at the time she was still just being super friendly over the top. But what she said came true. We, we ended up being very, I wouldn't say best friends, but we are very good. We are very good friends and she's a lovely human being. And I'm very, very, very lucky with that. Cause stand-ins and actors do not have the kind of relationship that Emma and I have. So, yay. So basically a fangirl moment come true. Mm-hmm. But, uh, it's, it's helped a lot with, um, I mean, I've gifted season two is the 50th production I've worked on. Um, so I, celebrities are just people to me. They are people with bigger paychecks. <laughs> um, now I've, I've never been a quote unquote super fangirl like what you have heard in this podcast is about my level of fangirling um and i think that's actually one of the reasons that i keep getting work um because they're like oh we can put brianna next to the actors they're not gonna freak and she's not gonna freak and it'd be fine um and it's it actually that is a major major essential to being a stand-in um Sometimes a photo double, but mainly a stand-in is be cool. Don't be weird. Respect the actors. Respect their space. Um, even though Emma and I are real-life friends outside of work, I still am wary to go up and just chit-chat with her in between takes um, because she could be going through lines in her head. She could be rehearsing. She could just need downtime just need a breather, just need to decompress. 
Um, and that's something that is something I've had to learn over the years. Um, because I think it's very easy for people on the other side of the screen to just see celebrity and not realize the person behind it and the struggles that they go through. Because it's easy to think, well, girl, with your paycheck, whatever, I'd like those struggles too. Except no, sometimes you really wouldn't. Um, Constantly having to be on and happy 24-7, having to constantly be in mode with the fans and while also doing your job for 16 plus hours a day plus brand sponsorships and press tours and just it is exhausting um so i take a weird pride in my job because then i get to go let her sit down for a while and chill or rehearse or whatever but i still kind of get to be part of the magic of making it all happen so i like my job I wish it paid better, but I like my job. I think, that, I think that's a key thing that a lot of people would need to think about because that's something that, coincidentally, Peter, who we had on a few episodes back, it was something he told me years ago when I did a workshop with him, and coincidentally as a photographer, um, and was that if you do work with celebrities, you treat them just as people because... Because every day they get, you know, if they're music or whatever, they're consistently asked about that 24-7. Like, treat them like your friend. Treat them just like just another person. And I think that's why, you know, in both our lines of work, both yours and mine, that's why we're able to do these sort of things because, yeah, we may have that fanboy or fangirl moment initially when we find out, like when you've gone, oh, I've got Polaris, and it's like had your fangirl moment. But then you take a shift and you focus on what needs to be done which is essentially you know how, mm-hmm. I, how I approach every podcast you know I'll, I'll get that oh yes awesome I've got this person but then I'm like well okay that's that's my fanboy moment done let's focus on making the, exactly. inter- the interview happen because if you dwell on it too much you're just going to freak them out they're never going to want to talk to you again and they most likely deal with that you know during press tours mm-hmm. and Q and A's, and that's all lovely, you know. That's not a diss at fans or anything, because you know we're fans ourselves. But when you do our line of work, you do also need to be able to separate it, and I think that's pretty crucial in both Absolutely. in both your line of work with standings. And like you said, you know, even though you are friends with Emma, she's still got to sort of have a space, even if you are on the same set together for sixteen hours. Mm-hmm. You know, you've still got to go. Well, still a person. She, she, you know, she might be dealing with some shit today. You know, I don't want to make that worse for us, sort of thing. And I think, exactly. I think, I think if that's something, you know, whether whether it be people wanting to get into what we do, or even just a different line of work that deals with celebrities, you know, like a publicist, they need to, they can have their fanboy moment or fangirl moment. That's great. Everyone does that. That's human. Oh yeah, even celebrities. <laughs> yeah. even celebrities I do see that it all the time yeah. on set. I mean, I, oh, I yeah. wish I've seen Taylor Swift fan go over quite a few people. <laughs> but then you was, you, oh, yeah. you know she gets to it and does the job. And I think that's for – any, for anyone listening that wants to do either stand-in work or podcasts or have any sort of interaction with celebrity, I think that's something that – you know, that's a crucial thing to remember is treat them like another human being. Treat them like you would your friend. 
because and have have empathy that's yeah. that's the biggest key of and it can be really hard to do that when you're in fangirl or fanboy mode mm-hmm. and you're just so excited um and it's okay to be excited um but it's also like i and i've um i've seen this both on set and when i would do the walk around and see the celebrities at dragon con is to to use the phrase read the room mm. read read their faces read their body language if you can i know some people are not very good at that but it, it is a amazing skill to learn um because a lot of times they're tired they're exhausted and or they're or they could be really happy or they could be sad and they don't want to make you feel sad so they put on a mask um it's learning empathy treat them how you would like to be treated and i think that can go a long way to help with that sort of thing so we go there's some advice for anyone who wants to get into what we do <laughs> treat others how you want to be treated yourself rather than as a celebrity because realistically celebrities are just people they're just as as yep. brian has said and a lot of times a paycheck than you <laughs> Yep, and a lot of times have I found, so sorry to interrupt you, I didn't mean to, um, that they are, the the bigger celebrities they are, a lot of times, the more overworked they are. Unless you're at, like, Robert Downey Jr. level, where you can set getting off at 7 o'clock at night on your contract to be with your family, unless you're up at that level, um... Oh gosh, they're so overworked into crazy levels that would make anybody else sick. And think of like just the mental state someone would be in working 16 to 20 hours a day, five, six days a week, being away from their homes, away from their families, usually sometimes in another state or other part of the world. And let me tell you, film sets are uncomfortable. You're lucky if you get to work on stages, which is why I liked working at the Hellfire Club <laughs> because it was nice and cozy. Although they like to freeze us out with the air conditioning for some reason that none of us could figure it out. And we were wearing winter coats in 90 degree summer weather inside. I don't understand. I hope they fix that next season. I, was say, I think they took that from the films because there was one iteration of the Hellfire Club, I believe, where it was with Emma Frost no. mm-hmm. yeah Emma Frost I think and like full on froze the room so I think they probably took it from that and just went let's do it to the cast <laughs> let's make, let's make it oh happen. no it was the enti- it was the entire <laughs> studio that we shot at all the time every day did not matter what we were shooting it was something with the air conditioning it was ridiculous but minus that oddity um, film sets are just uncomfortable I can tell you having worked on 50 productions they are so uncomfortable if you're filming outside, nine times out of ten, you will be wearing five million layers and shooting a winter scene. And then when it's, you know, going into the dead of winter, you will be in swimwear shooting a pool scene. That is just how we crazy people do. Um, so you factor in all those things. And as awesome as as working on film and TV sets are, it's very grueling. 
Um, and then you put on having to memorize script lines, getting into the character fully, whether you're a method actor or not, um, plus all the press tours. And then social media, of which on our show, Emma DeMont is queen. Um, it's so much work, so much energy. I don't know how they do it. Um, so I, I give that to, to those as a glimpse into this crazy world. So think of that, like when you go see celebrities, um, that you may envy them. Um, and understandably so they are usually very awesome people. I've only met a couple of actors in my entire working career that I have not liked. Um, literally like three, (laughs) um, yeah, just empathy, compassion, patience. Is there a particular favorite production out of those fifty that you've done that kind of sticks out? Oh, Gifted, and I'm I Gifted season two. Okay, one hundred percent. Aside from the Gifted. Okay, uh, MacGyver season one. I think I might have been one of the few that liked working that season. I don't know why. Apparently it was very rough for a lot of other people, but I was in my little stand-in bubble. Um, stand-ins tend to be separate from all the rest of the drama happening on various sets. Um, so I didn't see any other. I have only heard rumors. They may not even be true. Um, but I had a ton of fun working on MacGyver season one. Um, I was coming out of a dark place in my life personally. And it, uh, we just have so much fun on that show. It's MacGyver. You get to come in and do James Bond stuff like every day at work. And Lucas Till is super fun, super funny. Um, also a fellow geek. We used to play so many pranks on him. Because uh, MacGyver season one, we were filming when the whole Pokemon Go craze was happening. And for those that don't know, Lucas Till likes his Pokemon. And boy, did we know it. Um... Our, the studios for MacGyver was a spawning ground for Pokemon. And uh, uh, he'd usually always have his phone in his hand playing in between takes. Um, you know, when he was not working. And us stand-ins got a little too full of ourselves. <laughs> and we would, we would play pranks on him. He finally wised up to it and then did it to us. Um, <laughs> but we would, we would say things like, oh, Lucas, there's this rare Pokemon that's spawning right over in that corner. Quick, get it. It's going to leave. And he would, I mean, he would dash for it. He would bolt to the other side of the set. And he'd come back and be like, oh man, it disappeared right when I got there. I was like, oh, so sorry, man. He finally wised up, I think on like the third time. <laughs> it's like, I hate you guys. That is evil. Oh, it was so much fun. Oh, yeah. That was a lot of fun. So, so did you get to work on The Hunger Games? Because I think that filmed in Atlanta, didn't it? I did. Um, I worked on three out of the four movies. What was that like? Yep. Um, interesting. I have so many stories. So many. I didn't work on the first one. Um, Catching Fire was my very first extra gig. Um, so before being a stand-in, I did a lot of extra work, which for those not in the film industry, extra work is nothing glamorous. It is the lowest job on the totem pole. Not celebrities. We are professional background blurs. 
Um, so for those that like to get high and mighty about being an extra, <laughs> I am making a face at you right now. Um, <laughs> now, extra work uh, while being a minimum wage kind of thing can also be super fun. And um, I did with Catching Fire and Mocking Jay, part one and two. I got to work all three of those. Um, I actually earned a nickname on Catching Fire that stuck through that one and Mockingjay Part 1 and 2 and when I worked as an extra on Walking Dead. So it followed me for like two years, uh, which was reverse Katniss. I can't even use the story of that one now. <laughs> All right. Let's see if I can do Reader's Digest version of this. Um, so we get to set. And it started because the hair department was given a specific note to not give any of the extras down braids. Because that's the Katniss braid. Well, guess what they did to me? The Katniss braid. And they did... And they didn't just do a down braid. They did the Katniss braid on me. Now, they pinned it, but I warned the stylist. I was like, look, my hair is a slippery son of a gun. It's going to slip out. You're going to need more bobby pins. Did she listen? Nope. So sure enough, it fell out. And I'm expecting it's going to get, you know, put back up. And they didn't. So I was the only extra with a down braid. With the Katniss braid. And that's how it started. They're like, oh, you're like Katniss. Um, and there were a lot of people that were reading the Hunger Games books on set. And they're like, yeah, you don't look like Jennifer Lawrence per se, even though I found out Jennifer and I are actually the same height. Um, but they're like, oh, you look like book Katniss. Um, I mean, that's a, that's so a compliment, to be honest. I'll take it. Yeah. I'll take it. Um, and... Then in our, because you're usually stuck in extras holding, waiting to go on set for hours and hours and hours. So you do things to keep yourself busy. Um, and that particular day, I was with a group of extras that had played into my little game of let's make up our characters because we're bored. Who are we in this world of District 12? And so we created all of our characters. And Nobody could remember my name that day, which is understandable. You're, you're with a hundred people. You're not going to remember people's names, but people kept calling me Katniss. Um, and I decided to run with this idea. So I created a character. Her name was Aura and she, uh, worked with the coal, separating the coal and the ore. Um, hence Aura because ha punny. Um, but I decided rather than puffing myself like, yeah, I'm Katniss, blah, blah. When I'm on set with Jennifer Lawrence Katniss, I was like, I'm going to be dumb Katniss. I'm going to be the anti Katniss, which basically for me meant my character lives in district 12 and idolizes Katniss, except she's not the brightest bulb in the box. Um, so she keeps trying to do the things that Katniss does, but fails at them miserably. So things like, I have very thin hair. Anyway, you put it into a braid, 
it's a teeny tiny little rat tail. It's like that big. Um, so I decided to say things like, oh, I was trying to be the girl on fire, except I burned half my hair off. <laughs> and that was how it started. Um, but then for the next three days of filming, Jennifer was actually on set. It was a scene in Catching Fire where, um, actually we filmed multiple scenes. Oh, we, yeah, we did like three or four scenes and Jennifer comes on set and I realized because I was literally the dirtiest extra on set because I was the last one in the makeup line. And some poor PA came running in from set and were like, the extras are not dirty enough. You have not put enough dirt on them. Oh, I was in the chair. I got so much dirt put on me. I was probably seven shades darker than my normal skin tone. <laughs> Which meant when it came up for camera time, they wanted to put the dirty extras in the front to look like, you know, the sad, decrepit, people of district 12 that Katniss is coming home to. That was when we discovered that Jennifer and I were the same height as they put me right in front of her. I was like, Oh, hmm. and from then all through the filming days of catching fire. And then it happened on mocking J part one and two, whatever I did, Jennifer would do the opposite of, or what Jennifer would do. I would do the opposite of, of just stupid little things like the way that we would walk onto set somehow we would walk onto set the same way or we would sit down in similar positions it, it was just weird unplanned stupid stuff um but it was always the opposite side for some reason and neither of us were obviously jennifer didn't know who the heck i was and i wasn't watching her it just happened and that was how reverse katniss was born Oh, uh, I guess I'm pretty sure the Quarterquell Arena was. I think if I remember reading, it was like the biggest set they've done, like in Atlanta, yeah. I believe, because it, it stretched over quite a few kilometers, I believe. Because oh, yeah. I was like one of the diehard fans, so I got like all the books, and I remember in one of them they said about the with the clock one, it was like they had so many tons of dirt and everything to build it. It mm -hmm. was like a full-on, large, full-scale set. Yeah, it, it was a massive, massive set. And it was um, it Mockingjay. Well, from memory? Yep, I said I didn't. I didn't get to work on any of those. I worked on uh, uh, the District Twelve set when she was like doing the tour, the World Tour or the Pan Am Tour, and then Mockingjay Part One and Two. I was actually cast in District Thirteen. Um. But there were a bunch of us that were also there from District 12 because, unfortunately, there's only so many of us in Atlanta that are really skinny and we get typecast for everything. So you'll see us all on Walking Dead and Hunger Games. So we all kind of know each other and we all kind of started on Hunger Games. Um, so we had the running joke was like, well, there was technically people that survived from District 12. And so the saga of Reverse Katniss continued. I have it written down somewhere. I uh, I have a couple of blog posts up right now on my blog um, about Catching Fire. Um, I haven't done any of the Mockingjay ones yet, but I should. Because I, I wrote out 
every day on set, I'd write out what we did that day and how Reverse Katniss factored into it and how the other extras I was with factored into it. And we had a whole thing going. Because, you know, you have lots of time. You're bored. Things happen. The, the blog will be linked in the description for those listening as well. So there is that. On, uh, well, we're also focusing on modeling because we do have models that listen to our podcast. I thought we'd touch on new modeling as well. And as a photographer myself, naturally, I'm interested. <laughs> How did you initially get into modeling? I, I've been doing it for over a decade now. Um, it was the typical, oh, you're tall and really skinny. You should do modeling. Um, of course, I lived in Nashville, so there was only so much one could do with that. Um, but it was, I will f- put a full disclaimer out here, although I wish I didn't have to say this, that <laughs> um, unfortunately I am not a pro model in the sense of like Vogue magazine type of editorials. I wish, I wish I were that level. I've been trying for years, but um, unfortunately that level of model is extremely competitive and extremely cutthroat. Yep. Um, uh, it took me years to get over the complex that I had from that because they will measure you within a half inch of your life. Um, so my stuff has mainly been local events, local designers and photographers. Um, and I've settled in that in the last few years because huh, being high fashion they're like, oh, no, you're too old, you're too short, you're too fat, your teeth are too perfect, your third toe is a half inch too short, or something equally ridiculous. Um, so I was like, you know what? As much as I would really love to be a fully pro top level model, I don't think that's ever going to happen. But I love modeling um, so much, so I just decided to kind of take my own stride on it. So I work with a lot of photographers um, locally in the Southeast because I find a lot of them do commercial work uh, to pay the bills, but what they really want to do is the high fashion stuff. Um, But real pro high fashion models are like, no, you're going to pay my rates. And I'm like, hi. (laughs) So they like to work with me. (laughs) I'm very much Um, the photographer that comes to you. (laughs) But for me, it's creating the art yeah, that matters more. Um, getting, and especially for me, because I'm a very physical person, which is partially actually 90% of what makes me good at my job as a stand-in, um, is as a model, there's so much physicality that goes into it that I think a lot of people don't realize. Um, and so I, I didn't want to lose that. And there's so much creative expression that goes into that. And I found, like, since the accident, it's been even better for me to work through depression or anxiety or various things like that. Like, I have one photographer in town. Bless him. Um, who I've worked with before. And I, I do my best to be an absolute professional at all times. Um, if I say I'm going to be at a shoot, I will be there. 
Um, I don't flake out unless... I mean, I don't flake out. If I don't come, it's because there's an emergency, I'm sick, something of that variety. And I remember there was one day that I just... My depression had hit so badly. And I was going to go shoot with this photographer who I'd shot with before. And thankfully, he knew about my depression. And he knew that I was um, newly struggling with it. Because I never had depression until my accident. Until uh, about... Weirdly, it didn't show up till like two years after the accident. Because brains are weird. Um, And he was so kind. And he said, I know that you just want to stay in your bed right now. And you don't feel like you can bring your A-game with posing and look great and fabulous. I encourage you to still come out here and shoot to work through your depression. Just work through your movement. Because he knows I, while I am not the most super model, beautiful, photogenic girl ever, look good from every angle, my, um, my strength is in posing. And he's like, just come here and do some body work. Just contort your body to feel like to show what you're feeling inside. So show me that sadness that you're feeling or that emptiness um, or that lethargy, whatever it is, model that. We're not here to make a pretty picture. Um, And even though like it was a Herculean effort to get out of bed and go there, like, there was something about him saying that that made me go, that? Huh. And the photos that we got are some of my favorite photos that I've ever done. Yeah, it is a kind of weird thing. When you say the brain's a weird thing, it's it usually hits at the worst of times, generally. Right. Or, or when you, when you like, like Christmas, one, one, one yep. decided to do that. I was just like, you know, I'm having a good time. It was probably overdue. And then, bang, on Christmas Day, it decides to hit. So, yeah, it's... Yep. it's. But photography is how I work through it. And then when I'm feeling a bit, yeah, I'll go and do some editing and work on that. So I think as, and as long as the photographer is, like, aware of that and is willing to, you know, work with the model to... And is conscious of that, then I think generally the model is fairly appreciative of that fact that oh yeah you know that they they take that in consideration because like I don't expect everyone to work with you know to be this perfect flawless model because no one is like but if you you know you talk to them and be friends with them because I mean that's something I've been told I shouldn't do and yet it's something that seemingly works for a lot of nervous models is befriend mm-hmm. the model talk to them about what they love because. Nine times out of ten, that's going to get them far more relaxed than awkward silence. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> because that's it's uh, yeah, that's that's often what a lot what a lot of I've really only had like one model say, "Oh, you shouldn't be friends with models," and I go, "Well, honestly, it's worked with everyone else but the one, and it's made them more comfortable. We get to know each other, and nine times out of ten, they'll come back for a second one because they felt comfortable and relaxed." And that's what that's what you want. Like the, there's all oh, these yeah. intense high fashion ones, and oh, sorry, <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt you. 
Um, I can understand the idea of like, oh, photographers shouldn't friend the models because I, I find, and I don't know if this is in the case of the model that told you that. Um, I can't speak for, for that model. Um, but I can see it being uh, a potential issue because some photographers are not. Um, they have ulterior motives. Yeah. So I can understand. Usually that's some stranger danger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can understand, you know, certain barriers. Like I am very uh, myself because I've been doing this for years and I, I will absolutely be quote unquote friends with photographers like on Instagram and just like through a professional means. Now, if we're talking on my personal Facebook Mm. um, or in real life, well, not real life, but like in person, that goes into a different territory. Um, But I've had plenty of where I've, like, okay, I've shot with you a couple of times. I feel comfortable with you. Okay, now I allow you into the actual friend space. But I think that first note of, like, Instagram and maybe even a Skype session or something um, does do wonders to help a model feel comfortable. Because, yes, a model should be professional and just be able to bust it out. But let's face it. Most of the time when we're doing photo shoots, it's not for a client. Mm. It's not for a professional magazine where it's just shoot and go, where the team barely even talks to each other. Um, we're creating art. We're creating, you know, whether it's cosplay photography or fashion photography or um, concept art photography, whatever it is there is much more of a, a symbiosis that goes with creator and createe. And that is usually a relationship that needs to be nurtured more than just, okay, get up in front of the camera. Okay. Pose. Okay. Sexy. Good. Okay. Go. Bye. Uh, when, when I say about befriending, you know, I'll, I'll probably clarify that. I mean, like finding something, you know, that you can both nerd out about or, you know, like, oh, you know, do you like Star Wars? And if they do, then we'll just talk about that. And it sort of gets them into a headspace to relax then. And that, that, oh, that's absolutely. Uh, so when I say with friend, I, I'll, yeah, I mean, less less like Facebook friends, you know, hang out sort of thing, more like find something that connects both of you and chat to them about that or ask what kind of music they oh, like. Oh, 100%. Like, you know, what kind of music do you like? And then put that on and it, you just like, yeah. it just flicks a switch in them and they'll just be much more relaxed. I think that's the totally. thing that, and as you said, you know, there's some with ulterior motives, which does make it hard for those of us that, you know, do do yeah. it. And I'm sorry I misunderstood you. No, no, I'll, no I'll, um, there's, it's, it's the ones with the ulterior motives that do make it hard for those of us that want to just create art. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, you know, there's always, there's, like, you know, some decided to want to spread rumors because they don't like your work or, you know, they're not like you for some reason. And it's just, it'd just be nice if we had that less pulling others down and more supporting each other. But, Agreed. I mean, that's probably still going to happen, I guess. Oh, yeah. And I'm assuming particularly, like, a particular genre you prefer shooting would be high fashion, going by... Yeah, that's yeah. my favourite. <laughs> going by the amount you've mentioned, I figured that was probably your... Yeah, that's my favorite. That one, unfortunately, is the hardest one to pull off. 
mainly because it requires wardrobe and people that know how to shoot well um, to make it truly work. Because um, I have had both. I've had times where I've been in a beautiful haute couture custom-made gown and then come to find out the photographer doesn't know how to shoot very well and I could probably shoot better pictures on my phone um and then I've had the I've also had the opposite where they shoot beautiful pictures and then I get there and it's a, a basic outfit and it's not couture at all um but you know it, it's couture is difficult it, re- it usually requires either money well actually no it just requires money because even if you're technically not paying or you're just having a gown or a look on loan from somebody else it costs money to make it whereas commercial photography or um i just say it's like standard portraits like it costs no extra money besides the photographer camera equipment which obviously does cost a lot um uh, Team-wise, hair, makeup, wardrobe—it costs nothing to get a picture of a girl out in a field in a tank top against a sunset. It could be a beautiful picture still, but there's a difference between that and her being in a full-length, you know, Vogue ball gown with huge headpiece and massive props and lights and something that any Lebovitz would shoot. That takes a lot more money and a lot bigger scale. So I don't get to shoot those very much at all. (laughs) Um, But it's super fun when I do. Given you're over a decade in the industry, do you have any advice for new or any experienced models? If so, what would it be? Practice, 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 practice. Um, a lot of people, and I get this even from my friends, that will look at my pictures, when, especially when I'm, I am notoriously hard on myself and tend to hate my face most days of the week. Um, and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, your pictures are amazing. You look flawless in all of them. I'm like, yes, because I'm not putting up the bad ones. And I have... Um, Although I realize that this is an audio only uh, uh, piece. Um, So you don't see me sitting lazily, no makeup, bad lighting in a chair. Mwahaha. Jokes on you, listeners. Um, That um, realize like what angles work best for you and your face. Um, Because like for me, I do not have a super strong model face because usually quote unquote air quotes Mm. uh, usually they like strong bone structures stronger jaw lines Um, me at some angles with certain lighting um, I become the jawless wonder Uh, you know it all becomes one there's no shadow it's just face neck um or I'll have deep nasal label folds right here that I'm showing you because you can see me right now. Um, Mr. TJ 
how that shadow is very deep, but if I turn up towards the light, oh, look, it kind of goes away. And that's from practice and years of seeing bad photos of myself and going, okay, well, what angles of me work and what don't? Um, and that can go so far into confidence building. Um, so yeah, I just say practice, try things, experiment. Not every shoot is going to be good. I have had plenty of awful shoots. Um, also, and this is a lesson I am still learning after 12, 15 years of doing this. Um, even if you don't like the picture of yourself, other people may love it. And I've had to do that with my own pictures where I'm like, I look terrible in this picture. You can see my nasal label folds really strong and my janky mouth and uh, my nose looks all short and stubby and uh, and I'll put it up and I'll get 30 comments and 500 likes. And then the next picture where I'm like, oh, I look like Lara Croft with my piercing eyes and my perfect cheekbones and that strong jaw and it'll get like 12 likes and two comments. <laughs> so beauty is in the eye of the beholder, truly. That's a very similar experience for me as well. As a photographer though. It's usually the one I love and it gets like two likes. And then it's like the one I'm like, eh. I had that with an exhibit when I was in college and had one I still don't, I'm not a fan of, but I put in the exhibit because the teachers loved it. I'm like, okay. I mean, it got me an A or something, so, eh. But I'm still mad at myself that I actually put that in because I didn't know I've never liked it. It's, yeah, it's, I think, I think, I think we are our own worst enemy when it comes to oh, 100%. work. It's like, I hate that. And everyone else is like, I love it. And we go, really? And you're like, <laughs> why? <laughs> but then I realized that I do that to other people where they're like, I like terrible. And I'm like, stop you look amazing like let me tell you how amazing your smile is right now and how jealous i am of your hair and the fact that it falls so perfectly in this pre-raphaelite way and i'm so jealous and they're like what are you talking about and i'm like oh i i should be kinder to myself i have not learned this lesson yet um but you know life struggles it's a thing is there something photographers do when working with you that really irks you and you wish other photographers knew not to do it? Um, I, I don't think there's anything in particular like that. Um, as it is, I have preferences. Like I like being able to see the raw photos that we're shooting. Um, while we're shooting it because sometimes I think I'm pulling a great pose and I think I know how it's going to look on camera because being a storyboard artist and a model, putting those two together, I can usually imagine how it's going to look through the camera. But there are times where, but I'm not versed in lighting. So sometimes I don't realize that, yeah, I know how that frame's going to look and I know how I'm going to look in that frame, but I didn't realize that this light over here just shadowed this part of my face and brought this feature out and, and deadened this one. Um, or I think, okay, well, that pose looks really good from this angle, but it looked terrible from that angle. And I think, oh my gosh, I can make it so much better if I had just 
seeing that picture, like, if, and I had that happen a lot early on. I haven't had that happen as much lately because I think photographers um, have wised up to that with models. Um, shout out to Robert of Sublime Lightworks, who has an ingenious system that he does. And he um, actually has a monitor set up that his camera's hooked up to. And he has the monitor facing the model so that every time he takes a picture, the picture shows up in real time on the monitor. So you can adjust in real time. I think Peter, that we had a few weeks back, did, does a similar thing in his studio. You have the monitor so cool. set up. There. I'll do that if I could, but most of the time I shoot had tours, so there's, there's, oh, there's yeah. not that option. And that's fine. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's more of a studio thing. Um, but even just showing the model the back of the camera to look through it. And I've had that happen so many times where I'm like, oh, man, I really, really like that one. But I wish I had just done my head you know, this way instead of that way. And then I can run back out there and shoot it real quick. Um, but that's, that's about it. I don't think there's any habit that specifically irks me um, that I can think of off the top of my head. Well, thank you for joining us today, Brianna. And The Gifted returns January 1st on Fox in the US and January 2nd on Fox 8 in Australia. With season Happy two, New Year! Season 2 episode, Enemy of My Enemy, which is looking good for Lauren, for those that's like evil Lauren. Brianna's cosplay and modelling will be linked in the description wherever you're listening. I've been your host, TJ, alongside Brianna Lamb, and we'll see you all in the next episode.